Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined by John McDermott. And John is the Executive Director of MOTU. That's a research organization, a consultancy here in Wellington. But perhaps more importantly for the conversation that we're having today, he was also the Chief Economist at the RBNZ and he was an Assistant Governor at the RBNZ. And we want to talk about monetary policy in New Zealand. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on our podcast. I've invited you after reading one of your columns in the NBR a couple of weeks ago, where you talked about the overhang of all the monetary stimulus from the last couple of years, the quantitative easing that we've seen, and how difficult it is to wind this back and what would happen if we don't wind it back. Can you explain to our listeners what's happened? Well, well I'll try. Okay. <laughs> Lots of things have happened. If you go back to 2020, there was a lot of pressure on the central bank. The financial system was gumming up because of the concerns around COVID. So they had to do something. So we're talking about March, April 2020. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the first thing they were looking at is the banking system itself was getting very nervous about what might happen. It was very uncertain. So there's a, there's a few policy responses. One is the traditional, let's cut interest rates, support demand. But in addition, they also wanted to do quantitative easing because they got interest rates very low. And the first stage of that was actually to buy government bonds. And that was one of the announcements quite early on in the COVID crisis. And I mean, you were probably there at the time of the GFC. That reminded many observers of what happened in the GFC, right? Similar to other countries in the GFC, New Zealand didn't have to do that at that time. It had a much more traditional monetary policy. Yep. It didn't have to do QE. Because it also came from a much higher rate at the time. Correct, correct, mm. yeah. And then you were looking at the the scale of the bond purchasing program in New Zealand. It was very large, relative to the size of our economy. It was about $20,000 per head. Yeah, yeah, very large. And you're thinking about the scale of it relative to the fact that the slowdown in New Zealand wasn't as bad as other countries. The period of lockdown was much shorter and the public health problems were constrained, fortunately. Mm. But, you know, it was very uncertain, so maybe, maybe not, but it was very large. At what time during 2020 did it become clear to you that actually the economic emergency is not quite as large as people thought it might be back in March? So at the time I was actually doing some work on on COVID, on what was happening, and I was actually on national radio. Mm -hmm. uh, at about day 12 of the lockdown saying, this has now been effective. Mm -hmm. We're going to get rid of COVID from our community. It's going to work. There'll be a bit of a tail. So you can start thinking about from day 12 of the lockdown, the first stage of the emergency was over. And it was about, what, 28 days of lockdown or there, thereabouts? I, I forget the exact number. Yeah, yeah. But certainly once the once we were out of lockdown, the economy was re rebounding very fast. And the and financial system w was no longer in panic. That's right. And there was also, of course, a lot of not just monetary stimulus, but fiscal stimulus as well. Yeah, and, and some of that was to protect, you know, vulnerable businesses, businesses who'd been forced to lockdown. So that was a regulated market failure for a public policy reason or for a public health reason. And so the government decided, well, we're going to support them. So the fiscal policy, I think, unusually was rapid. It was temporary and timely. And, and that and fiscal policy, you know, lingers and it carries on and you, you build up the debt. 
But there was no reason beyond the first month or couple of months to continue with emergency monetary policy. So basically by May 2020, it became clear that apart from education exports and tourism, obviously, the rest of the economy basically was unscathed. Yeah, correct. And, and things were coming back rapidly. Confidence was coming back. Yeah, and, the, and those sectors you mentioned, there's very little monetary policy could do about that anyway. Yes. What was more amazing, though, is the central bank started to talk about negative interest rates. They had talked about this in 2019 already, I remember. Which seemed unnecessary at that time. Mm -hmm. They started to have the banks, probably at great expense, get ready for this policy initiative. And it was difficult. And then the one thing additionally they did is start to introduce funding for lending. Yes. So this wasn't, wasn't buying government bonds. This was allowing the banks to come to the central bank and borrow money. But that wasn't in effect until December 2020, well after it was needed. So what has all of this done to New Zealand's monetary base? So the monetary base, typically before this was very stable, quite steady at about $15 billion dollars. It's now just a bit short of $60 billion. 60. 60. So we're, we're talking about a nearly four times increase. What should happen then when the emergency is over is, of course, that you would try to bring the monetary base back to where it should have been without the emergency. But that's not what's happening right now. No, and it's quite astonishing. And despite the fact the central bank knows and accepts there's an inflation problem because of this. It's quite visible now. <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> feeling it. You, absolutely. You know, and they're raising interest rates. So you'd expect the monetary base would be normalizing. And it's not. It's actually still increasing. And nobody's talking about it. It's quite astonishing. How unusual is that actually compared to other central banks around the world? Are they trying to reduce their monetary base or are they also still in this mode where they're pumping in more liquidity into the markets? Yeah, great question. So now the central bank has said it was it stopped buying bonds. So you think it would have stopped, increased the monetary base. We'll talk about why that's not the case. You look at other countries, they're starting to do similar things, maybe after the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, but already their monetary base is in decline. You know, they've got a long way to go. Yes. But they have actually turned the corner. What's different here is our monetary base is still increasing. And we're talking especially about the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, actually, if you're going through their monetary base statistics, you can see that after the GFC, they were already trying to bring that back the monetary base. And, of course, they had a massive jump in 2020, like everybody else. But now they are trying to bring this back down again, probably because of America's experience of the Volcker years. They don't want to have that kind of rapid change again. But in New Zealand, and probably at the ECB as well, they are still in this territory where they're increasing the monetary base for all sorts of political reasons. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Now, so the Fed is slightly easier to understand. They've been they've gone through a few phases. One is, oh, inflation's gone up, but it'll be temporary. We don't want to react so violently to disturb the real economy or, or the labor market, so we'll let it run a little bit. Then they've gone, whoops, sorry, we're wrong. I think they've yes. got to the point where there's a recognition that that was a mistake. They've now focused on price stability, and which will come in two parts. One will be increasing interest rates, and mm -hmm. they're already on the move. The other one is, uh, as they st have stopped their bond purchasing program, they'll allow the monetary base to actually roll over. And they've already seen this, so that the Fed's balance sheet is starting to shrink, yes. and it will accelerate from here. Yep, quite but, a bit already from the peak. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. 
And so that's the right thing to do. ECB, look, very complicated. In, yes. in, in, in the time we have, I can't explain all this because it's a... Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> so there's many countries under a single system. Each of them have followed different fiscal paths, have different debt profiles. So some of them are in really good shape, can sustain an interest rate increase, which is needed to control inflation across the Eurozone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But there's some other countries with a very high debt profile, government debt profile, who are very vulnerable. And the market looks at that and says, you can't sustain it, and we're going to bet against you. And so they're very high risk. Okay, so if you're looking by comparison at the two largest central banks in the world, the Federal Reserve is already trying to get out of this. The ECB, for various political reasons, is unable to do it. But New Zealand should be able to do what the Americans do, and yet they are basically doing what the Europeans do. We should have been reversing the monetary base in late 2020. Correct. At, at the latest. And and look, and it wasn't impossible. So other countries have done this. So if you look at what Norway did, wonderful example of yes. emergency lending, they increased their, their monetary base more than New Zealand, and they're back to normal. Mm-hmm. So they recognized this was an emergency. You increase an emergency, the emergency is finished, and you go back to normal settings. And what did it do to the Norwegian krona and to inflation in Norway? So the, again, they had a spike. It was so inflation was coming back to normal. It, it, it sort of jumped about four ish or a little bit higher, it was coming back to three. They would have had a, a cured inflation problem. Unfortunately, they're right next to now what is a war zone. And, and so higher energy prices have pushed it back up again. But, but that's on, separate. on the other hand, of course, they're a big energy exporter, Norway. So, in a way, for their terms of trade, that would have been quite a positive in that sense. Yeah, but what I'm saying is in, in terms of the inflation problem, I mean, they liquefied the system, they got a little bit of inflation, but they'd removed it, their inflation problem would have been down to three or two percent by now, had it not been for other factors that came along just later. Okay, so you said before COVID, we had a monetary base of about 15 billion. Now, in a normal year, that would have probably gone up by two, three, four percent, something like that. So, Without COVID, we would still be at around 15, 15 and a half, maybe 16 billion. Instead, we're at 60. And that means we have to now shrink this back by more than 40 billion dollars. If we don't do that, what is going to be the outcome? So Im- imagine a world, it's hard to imagine, but imagine a world where you just keep it at near 60 billion. So we don't do anything. Well, your price level has to adjust to accommodate that. So your price level has to move up by a factor of four. Now, assuming that doesn't happen all at once, that would be kind of crazy. If you move inflation at 7% a year, your price level will double every decade. So it would take two decades to adjust. So you could still have 20 years of 7% inflation. Right. Will it actually take 20 years of constant 7% inflation, or do you think that at some stage it becomes a spiral? All I was doing was the arithmetic. Yeah, no, okay. yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, if you allow that to happen, you change everybody's expectations. Because the dynamic effects. The, the dynamic effects. So I wasn't even talking about I just said, yeah, yeah. if you don't make the policy adjustment. Now, mm. I, I really do and think... And they're making some adjustments, aren't they? Yeah. So there's, let's just go back to the funding for lending program, because that, that was something I did highlight. This was something that was put in place where they made a commitment that it would last for two years, I don't know why you would do that, because it should be in place Well, there's an emergency. Yes. That's what it should have been done. Mm-hmm. So, so it's still in place. Banks can borrow on three-year terms. The interest rate they're charged 
is the official cash rate. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at... It's very the, convenient for the banks. Oh, it's fantastic. Not just convenient, it's fantastic. Because let's have a think about uh, if they went elsewhere to borrow three-year money, they'd have to pay the market rate, which is the reference rate would be the three-year swap rate. Mm-hmm. At the time I was writing the column, it was like 200 basis points higher than the official cash rate. So this is a subsidy to the banks. This is roughly also what happened in the eurozone, of course, with their longer-term refinancing operations. So basically where the ECB said you can borrow as much as you like at a zero rate under the condition that you invest it into Italian 10-year bonds. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, the right principle for emergency lending is to lend freely. Look, you don't want your financial system to gum up. You, mm-hmm. you really want to protect it. But you do it at a penalty rate. <laughs> you do it at a penalty rate. At the very least, you should have done it at a market rate. Mm-hmm. So right now, the banks have no incentive to back away from this. And this is why it's difficult or now impossible to actually get rid of the monetary base. That also happened, if I remember correctly, in 2020 against the backdrop of the government underwriting some of the bank's lending. But again, the policy was put in place during an emergency, again, to protect a run on the system. So no problem with actually thinking about the central bank being a lender of last resort. That's mm. what it's there for. Yes. But you, you do it well there's an emergency, you lend freely, and you lend at a rate that starts to encourage the banks when things are normal to stop using that emergency funding. And now I would like to know from you why this was allowed to happen. I mean, the question I ask myself is, is any such policy possible, even with an independent reserve bank, without the implicit political backing of the Minister of Finance? So the first part of your question was, why was this allowed to happen? And it's like, that's a major puzzle. <laughs> no yeah, exactly. idea. I have no idea. So the government offered an indemnity. Yes. So the central bank was relieved of all financial liability here. So now there's pluses and minuses with that. One is good in an emergency for the Minister of Finance to stand behind the central bank and saying, this is a tough time, they're doing some tough policies, they have my backing. I, I kind of understand that. Uh, but the nature of that indemnity probably left for soft thinking. The indemnity, by the way, by now would have cost us as taxpayers about $8 billion, according to Michael Riddell. $8 billion. That's real money. That's an opportunity cost that we've lost. So the central bank has actually lost $8 billion. And technically speaking, they would be insolvent if they didn't have that indemnity, right? Yeah. But on the flip side, who's gained? In part, now the government was allowed to issue government bonds at a rate that's kind of cheaper because of that. Mm -hmm. So the overall loss to the crown is probably less than $8 billion. Okay. But at some point, why the central bank wants to hold on to those when it's causing an inflation problem is kind of crazy. Okay, but back to the question, how was this allowed to happen? There is the Monetary Policy Committee, of course, so it's no longer just a Reserve Bank governor making these decisions. They should have seen this coming. They should have seen in mid-2020 that they were probably overstimulating. They should have also seen the problems with the longer-term lending policy. And they didn't. They didn't do anything. It took them another year until they carefully started making noises about perhaps bringing this to a close. And also the sequencing. So when you're thinking about, we've liquefied the system, we've got very low interest rates, we've increased the monetary base, we no longer need it. What you would expect to have happened without an indemnity is the central bank doesn't want to make a financial loss. Yes. Right. So what it would have done is thinking about, well, I've I've done these two things. 
I, I've I've got lowered interest rates, and I've issued you know I've issued all this cash into the system, and I've, I hold these bonds. I'm going to lose money, right? so I should have actually sold the bonds first, then moved interest rates. Mm-hmm. That would have avoided the financial loss. Yeah, it would have been the right thing to do in terms of inflation control. Yes, is it? So it, it would have made sense. It would have made sense. So you're thinking, so somehow the analytic thinking was lost, and this was never discussed. So the reason I can't answer your question, this was never discussed in a monetary policy statement. This was never discussed in a speech. We got some vague statements about a lending for funding program that we have to keep it in place because we promised to keep it in place. Right. That, Which doesn't, is circular, make, that no, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's circular thinking. No, no. And... So that promise should have never been made. Mm-hmm. The promise should have been, we'll keep it in place as long as we need it, which is as long as the emergency lasts. Right. So you've got the bank's self-interest n- not to incur any losses on their programs, okay, even though indemnified. But at the very latest, when the inflation expectations signal that there's something happening in the market and people actually think that inflation is going to go up, that would have been the l- last point, actually, where the bank should have actually reversed. Yeah, correct. And, and again, the sequencing would have been fix your monetary base. Don't allow first. the expectations to spiral out of control. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Given, given okay. that <laughs> you're starting to lose control there already, the, the sequencing should have been, let's fix the monetary base. Let's get that back to normal. Mm-hmm. Right. So two things. Stop buying government bonds. They did that reasonably early. I would have done it earlier, but still. Sell some to the market. That, that reduces your monetary base. Actually puts interest rates up at the point where it affects business and consumer lending, so as the right effect, stop the funding for lending program. Yep. At the very least, move the interest rate to a market rate. Okay. Right. And then, after all that, then you can start moving your policy rate. Okay. But where we are now, all of this didn't happen. It is probably too late. Where does that leave the RBNZ today? how much credibility does it still have for price stability, given the fact that it actually missed the boat on all of these different measures? And now it's in a, and it's, it's in a tough place. Inflation is already out of control. Expectations have moved. They are moving interest rates aggressively to try and cure this problem. But that's going to leave the country with a recession that we didn't need to have. Does it matter then in the long term that the current leadership of the Reserve Bank and the Monetary Policy Committee probably lost credibility for price stability, and therefore they will have to work twice as hard now to regain it. So in that sense, they would have to increase interest rates much more than a reserve bank with the right credibility would have to do. That's what I was saying. Once inflation's running, you know, 7%, it's really hard to bring it back. Already firms and businesses will be saying, we have to compensate our employees. Yes. That's going to cost us 7%. Mm-hmm. They give them a 7% pay rise, but they go, oh, oh, my cost of production have gone up. I now have to increase my prices. And people are doing that. That's already happening. To break that psychology, you have to alter economic conditions. And so interest rates are going to be way, way higher than otherwise would have been the case. So is that your forecast, that we can expect the RBNZ now to increase interest rates massively over the next year or two? So we'll continue to increase interest rates. We will have a weaker economy I think it's still possible to cure inflation. We, we can still get on top of it. In terms of moving interest rates, the Reserve Bank here was probably one of the first, so people probably looking at it as being serious. But part of the game is they want a demonstration effect. Yes. I, and actually on that, uh, can I just ask, 
I have seen quite a few pieces of commentary, especially in international newspapers, but also some commentary here in New Zealand, where commentators said, well, look at the Reserve Bank. They're doing a fantastic job because they're now leading the way. They're showing the world how to fight inflation. And I find this ironic because they are only fixing their own mistakes and now they're getting praise for that. <laughs> well, it's, well, they, they've moved interest rates before the central banks. That's all they've done. Yeah. But there are laggards in the other space and they're allowing the monetary base to increase when others are already fixing it. So they're not at the front of where they need to be. Well, then let's hope that they can regain some of that credibility for price stability. But thank you very much, John, for joining us today. My pleasure.